If you would, um, we're going to be in the last part of Luke chapter 1, so if you have a Bible, open up to Luke 1. If you don't, uh, some folks are walking down the aisles, laboring and lugging these stacks of books. Just raise your hand, they'll give you one. I'm going to um, give a bit of an introduction before I have a stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We've been going through the book of Luke, and... Um, we're getting ready for Christmas Eve service, and, and we're going to, uh, on Christmas Eve, we'll obviously do the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, um, but I want to conclude, we, we took a look at Luke chapter 1 with Zacharias and Elizabeth with uh, the birth of John the Baptist, and at the conclusion of Luke chapter 1, uh, there's a prophecy that's given by Zechariah. Uh, he's, he's in his 80s, and here he is holding his newborn son in his 80s, and, and we, we remember the story where he sees the angel Gabriel, um, and he says he's going to be with child, and he says, how am I going to know this? And he's like, I'm Gabriel, hello, knucklehead. And uh, Gabriel um, kind of presses the mute button, and for nine months, um, Zacharias can't speak. And, um, and then uh, Elizabeth is pregnant with child, and we also saw in the previous study that uh, when, when Mary was pregnant with Jesus and would come into the presence of Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John, John would start doing flips in the womb. Um, and I got a kick out of that because poor Elizabeth, here she is in her 80s. And, uh, um, you know, I, I saw, a, I got to be careful with this one. I saw an advertisement for bladder control awareness, uh, a, like a gathering for bladder control awareness. And I'm thinking, Anyone who has bladder control problems is completely aware of that. <laughs> and here's poor Elizabeth, and she's carrying this baby at six months. And every time, and Mary lived with Zacharias and Elizabeth for a number of months. So every time she'd come into the room, you could just imagine John doing flips. And she's like, I got to use the restroom. You know, it's just, I thought it was funnier than that. But I, the whole picture was really in my mind of, of all this going on. And, and the reality is John the Baptist uh, his parents were probably probably uh, dead. They'd probably gone to be with the Lord by the time he was 14 or 15 years of age because they were in their 80s when they had him and they lived to be 98 or you know 102 or whatever. They didn't, they, he, he grew up pretty much without his folks. He was uh, an orphan early on. And it's an interesting story. And as I was contemplating whether or not to go into the Christmas story early or to finish up the last portion of chapter 1, it's been an interesting week, and I'm going to walk you through it uh, just to kind of do the introduction to the passage and how God kind of put it on my heart to share. Um, I, I was given a Christmas gift by Pastor Craig Lindquist. It's called The Disappearance of Moral Knowledge by a man named Dallas Willard, who taught at USC uh, for a number of years. He was a, a professor at, U, at USC. He's world-renowned, um, an amazing man. He died of pancreatic cancer a few, few years ago. Um, and he, he had written five chapters of what would be a seven-chapter book here. And he had completed all five and then was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And his three doctoral students that he was taking through their doctoral studies uh, came to him. And he had already done the outline for the last two chapters. And they said, we want to finish the book because it was such a burden to him that he, he really believed it was necessary for this day and age. Uh, it's called The Disappearance of Moral Knowledge. And so he gave them permission to finish the last two chapters based on uh, the outlines that he had written. And they finished the book, and it's out now. And I picked it up, and I was intrigued. I, it was, I was captivated by the title, just to begin with, the, the Disappearance of Moral Knowledge. I was captivated by the title. I got to the first sentence uh, when Dallas Willard begins to write, and I was, I was all in. 
and I couldn't put the book down and I was reading it and um, I got a, a text or an email, excuse me, I got an email from Dr. Mary Poplin who is a adjunct professor, a tenured professor at Claremont University and uh, I'm actually going to have her come and speak uh, uh, on a Thursday night when we start doing some things in the coming uh, new year. And she uh, inquired, she said, uh, the second week in January, are you still planning on coming out for the upper room gathering in Dallas? And that's where tenured professors from all over the country that have a Christian worldview gather to try to infuse um, Christendom into higher education, which seems to be void of anything that represents the Lord in higher education. And they educate and train these professors to, to have a stand for Christ in their classrooms and in their, their universities. And I had spoken once before and she was asking me to come out again. I said, I'd love to. I, I, and she says, what are you going to speak on? And, and, um, and she had emailed me and I hate emails, so I texted her back. Uh, and if I haven't responded to your email, that's why. Text me. Um, and if you don't have my number. So, No. <laughs> I'll give you my number. I will. 490-6360. Anyways. So I texted her back and I said, you know, um, I'm reading this book. It's fascinating to me. It's it's called The Disappearance of Moral Knowledge. And I'm moved by it. And it's coinciding with... Uh, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 9 with Zechariah's prophecy. And I'm, I'm absolutely stunned by it. And I really feel like God is formulating uh, a, a series of messages to give to the professors. And, and, I, and she said, you're reading Dallas Willard's book? I said, yes. She said, I'm just speaking with Dallas Willard's daughter who wants me to do a symposium on the book. Would you come and speak with me at the symposium? I'm like, I'm, I'm like not even through the third chapter. I don't, and you're smart and I'm not. So I don't know what you're saying. But as I laid out kind of what God was showing me, she was moved by it. I was moved by it. And I was just really intrigued. And then uh, Saturday comes along and my son uh, Michael is on uh, Christmas break from school, and he, he signed up for a uh, Christmas break um, uh, program for rowing, uh, where you, you, know, you go out to Ventura Harbor and you row. And, um, and, and so I was supposed to pick him up and go out and see how he was doing. And I drive out there and I pick up Michael. He's 17 years old, and uh, he's enjoying himself, and he was learning a lot about rowing, and he was tired. And we're driving back, and he starts up conversation with me, trying to engage his father in, in a meaningful conversation so he doesn't have to listen to Fox News. And I, I <laughs> I'm kidding. And, and, and he, he starts with this question, and I thought it very humorous, but it, it, it added to what God's doing. He says, Dad, all right, top 10 things you do if there was a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Who thinks like this? And, and, he, and, and I said, uh, okay. Uh, and I lay out a couple of things I do. And he goes, no, 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 no. This is what you do. And he says, we got to get the family up north to, to, you know. And he starts going through this whole thing. Because he's seen all the zombie stuff. Because it's his generation. And uh, by the way, I mean, can we have another zombie movie? Jeepers. And, it, and his thought process was really cool, uh, but it opened up for us a, a, a dialogue that I really enjoyed, and I thought it was in, impressive on his part as, as he started to formulate this thought. I, I said, you know, I wouldn't necessarily go anywhere. I'd stay put here. I'd get our immediate family, I, I, you know, and, and he said, well, okay, so we get the immediate family together. I said, yeah, and we want to protect him because a righteous man protects his family, and uh, and he said, so, you know, and I think we're going to need Micah Harris because he's really good with weapons. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we'll get Micah. Uh, and, and, and I said, now, our immediate family, does that include, uh, obviously, you know, 
uh, my two son-in-laws, James and, and Micah. Yeah, yeah, we got to get them. And I said, and then the grandkids, you know, Oliver and, and Liberty and the baby on the way. Yeah, yeah, got to get them. I said, now you know that James and Micah, their parents and siblings, we'd have to have them come. Oh, okay, yeah, we get them too. And, and as we're, yeah, I'm, I'm saying, and, and now we got a food issue because we got to feed them and take care of them. Oh, yeah, so the more people we have, the more we got to feed. That's, that's rough right there. And so we've got to be near farmland. And, and we're going through this whole process. <laughs> hey, it's my family. Yeah, <laughs> they're just like me. Woo-hoo. <laughs> so I said, I, you know, I said, this is, this is where it gets dicey. Because are we going to survive or are we going to advance civilization? Because there's going to be, need to be a moral code that we would agree with. And, and especially, I mean, this is Christmas time and, and our families gather, especially extended family, and you gather around the Christmas table and you're like, if there was a zombie apocalypse, I don't mind having Christmas dinner with you, but I don't need you in my house kind of thing. You, you, maybe you don't have that kind of family. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about that and, and, and because the further out the family goes, the moral knowledge of the family changes and what they consider absolutes and important all of a sudden changes. And how do you dwell in society? And one of the things that Michael inspired in, in the thought process for me was what he's describing is really what happened in the dawn of time. That on this earth, you, you, get, you get humanity and we have a sin nature and now we're trying to dwell and survive on this earth that has a struggle of what is inbred in every human heart, and that is selfishness. And, and we either want to oppress man or dwell together and endeavor for unity. And so we come up with all kinds of concepts and we codify a law. You can't do this, but you can do that. And you can do this, but you can't do that. And this is how we're going to get along. And so we establish, you know, uh, speed limits and, and all kinds of laws to codify and, 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 and you have this agreement, this compact, this civil compact where we, we dwell together so that we can flourish, so that our children have safety. And, and as men, we're protectors and providers, and we want to make sure of that. And that's how he's thinking. That's how I'm thinking. And, it, it, and the conversation, interestingly enough, he inspired me in relation to this, this passage. I was moved by it. I thought, you know, this is, this is life in general. And then I come across a, a video, a YouTube video that was sent to me um, by someone in the congregation, Lance Wallnow, and talking with another professor up in, in the Silicon Valley, uh, involved in a school that uh, our kids attended, um, Valley Christian, and what they're doing up there and, and how they looked at this term ecclesia and a number of other things. And all this is swirling in my head, and I come to this realization that as humanity, we're gathering in this room, and we're... we're, we're agreeing to standards that govern us as people. And now we live in a culture where the codified law and the way we operate is rapidly changing before our very eyes. And what is the purpose of the law and what is the purpose for our existence and how do we dwell together in unity? And you have an entire generation, my son and, and, and a little bit older than him and younger than him, that not all, including my son, but most of, of his generation has been inculcated or conditioned to think that somehow we can revisit socialism and this time it's going to work i mean it didn't work in cambodia a million starved to death it didn't work in you know china a million starved to death. it didn't work in russia a million starved to death. we're going to try it in venezuela this time that's really working well but but here in america we're, we're going to revisit it and 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 there's we're going to re, we're going to remove moral knowledge there won't be any absolutes, no moral absolutes. We're going to remove God from the equation. 
And, and man will attain to this understanding of, of supremacy. And now you have ideologies that go in opposite directions. And as you gather during the zombie apocalypse, you're fighting someone who's contending with you that wants to destroy you. Right? And so we look and we say in this world where we're struggling, is that the answer? Or is there something that's missing in our culture that did exist 50 or 100 years ago? We had moral knowledge. We knew what was right and wrong. And what's interesting to me is, you look at the Israelites. You see, the history of mankind is one man trying to enslave another, oligarchies. One man trying to enslave another, and then developing a system of government where we have freedom. Land of the free, home of the brave. And how does that work? And, and I remember speaking on Isaiah chapter 9 on a Christmas Eve service, and, and a congregant actually happened to be the largest tither in the church, and I only knew that because tithing dropped precipitously after they walked out. They couldn't believe that I would teach on Isaiah 9 and speak on government on Christmas Eve, even though it says that the government will be upon his shoulders. And they left. And I thought to myself, what is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of the ecclesia? Am I here to blow sunshine your way and do something and not challenge you, not move you? And, and, and I, I, I realized at that moment when they walked out that I had this unbelievable gift to preach a church down to a manageable size. <laughs> but as I consider the nation of Israel, here is a body of, of, of people that are unified by DNA and nothing more. And all of a sudden, they're oppressed by another set of human beings, either based on their skin color or based on their proximity of, of where their DNA originated. And one people oppresses another people. Maybe it's the skin color. Maybe it's the hair color. Maybe it's the eye color. And they oppress them to build all of their structures. And they're the slaves and they work all day so the others don't have to. And along comes this man named Moses who says to all these slaves, he says, God has called, this, called me to set you free. And he contends with the highest levels of government. And they finally release based on the strength of, of God and proving himself. And, and, and as they release them, the largest army on the face of the earth, the Egyptian army, chases these millions of Jews into the desert with this equipped army. And, and the Israelites have nothing to defend themselves. And without any weaponry, the entire Egyptian army is drowned in the, in the Red Sea. God does this. Parts the waters. They pass through on dry land. The Egyptians are, are, are swallowed up by the seas. They get to Sinai. And Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. And God gives him the Ten Commandments. And it's fascinating. I, I preached this in the first service. Uh, a group of folks in the church that just started to attend said, we've been moved we have, uh, by, by the sermons. We, we have a gift for you. I walked outside. And they give me uh, the Ten Commandments on slate. I was blown away. I got chills, but that's just me. So the, these 10 commandments, oh, and I got another gift. I got this from uh, a family. It's a Cadillac hood ornament. <laughs> Some of you have heard the story about me stealing the hood ornaments with a little kid. I was a terrible child. I had no moral knowledge. And, and my dad caught me. He found the bag of these Cadillac hood ornaments. If you lived in Coronado in the late 70s and you're missing a hood ornament, I'm sorry. 
My dad uses a teaching opportunity. My dad had three tours of Vietnam and when he was gone, this is just what I'd do. He wasn't around to instruct me or guide me and, and I, I was a wild banshee. And when he came back from Vietnam and he had these moral lessons with me, I remember one time I was throwing a ball against the wall of the neighbor's house who was pretty wealthy and I broke the window. And I went inside and this guy had more money than the Pope has appointments. He could replace it. He comes and knocks on the door. I'm like, dude, why are you? I'm, so I broke your window, you know? Go fix it. You got money. And my dad answers the door. And my dad was, you know, at the time uh, a, a commander. And, and uh, we had bought this dumpy house and, and put sweat equity into it. I mean, it was dilapidated. And he was stretched. He, he didn't have two nickels to rub together. And this wealthy man comes to the door and he says, your son broke my window. And he says, look, I can replace it. I can pay for it. But this, the boy's not going to learn a lesson. The window's been broken a number of times. My dad said, I understand. And my dad paid for the, the window. And my dad taught me a lesson. He said, son, somebody has to pay. You broke it. You should be paying, but you don't have the money to do it. I'm your dad, I'll cover it. But that man didn't break the window, and it was his property. And he teaches me moral knowledge. And one of the basics of moral knowledge that helped me into the ministry, even on that, that lesson my dad gave me, having returned from Vietnam, he said, somebody's got to pay. When there is a violation of the law, somebody's got to pay. Well, that resonated with me when I became a Christian because I understand the price upon the cross for my sins. Somebody had to pay. My dad paid for me for the window. Christ paid for all my sins, past, present, and future. Huge lesson. That's called moral knowledge. So as I'm thinking about these Israelites, here they are in the wilderness. As amazing as it is, 40 years they're in the wilderness. Their clothes never wore out. Their shoes never wore out. They had food provided in the form of manna and water coming out of a rock and quail that would be blown off course. 40 years. I mean, you look at the, uh, the, the, the military trying to supply millions of people. It's, it's train loads and train loads of food, supplies every day to feed millions of people where there's no food. And God did it for 40 years. And that's amazing. It's fascinating. And their clothes wouldn't wear out and all these miracles that occurred. But the thing that blew me away about the Israelites is millions of people wandering in the wilderness for 40 years without a police force or a standing army. Why? Because they had what was called this downloaded app of moral knowledge called the Ten Commandments. You don't steal. You don't lie. You don't commit adultery. You don't covet. And by, way, by the way, socialism is a violation of two of these Ten Commandments. Downloaded into every human heart that they would dwell together in unity so that mankind could survive on the face of the earth. And for 40 years, no police force and no standing army because they were governed by God. A moral code that this is how you treat humanity, this is how you treat one another. You don't enslave them, you serve them. You don't enslave them, you serve them. That, to me, is one of the greatest miracles. And the reason why I say that is because in Isaiah chapter 1, after this prophecy, here's, here is Zechariah holding his little son, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he begins to say to this little boy all these words in this prophecy. And what he's saying is, you're going to be the one who is going to make straight the way of the Lord. You're going to prepare the way for the Savior of the world that they would come to know the truth, and the truth would set them free. 
He would state this out of Isaiah 9, that in darkness, the people sat in great darkness and have seen a great light. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. There's going to be a moral knowledge, a downloaded app that will transform the world, and you're going to be the precursor. You're going to set that sun. And you're going to be different than all the other kids. No razor will touch your head. You're going to look different than all the other kids. You'll never touch alcohol. Oh no, you're not going to get to shop at Lululemon or anywhere else. You're going to wear camel hair. And you don't get to go to In-N-Out. You get locusts and honey. You're going to be so bizarre, nobody's going to want to even hang out with you. You're going to end up in the desert with the Essenes. You're going to be different than everyone else. And you're going to be declaring a moral standard and and moral knowledge for a world that has abandoned it. You want to talk about a challenge for young kids. That's rough. I remember growing up, uh, excuse me, I remember my kids growing up, and, and I'm the youngest of four, and so my, my brother has kids, my sister Nancy has kids, my sister Gretchen doesn't, and we would all gather, and, and their kids would kind of pick on my kids because they were homeschooled. They're like, dar, 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 dar. hey, you're weird. And that was back when homeschooling was kind of bizarre, and we'd be walking through the supermarket with our kids in tow, and, and the, kids, uh, the, the cashier would be going, why are you out of school? And they go, we're homeschooled. And you could just see them go, oh. And I mean, we, you know, it was like weirdoville. And, and all the family picked on my kids because they were homeschooled. And you know what? Every one of my kids walks with the Lord. Every one of them has a, a, a moral knowledge and a download where they're, they're I, I'm, I'm blessed. I know no greater joy than to see my children walk with God. And that's not to say if you're in private, uh, public school or private school, that doesn't happen. For us, that's the way it worked. Because we had a responsibility. I'm going to stand before God and give an accounting of my children's lives. I, I am their steward. And, and the Bible says wisdom is proven by your children. And I remember my parents and, and Michelle's parents, you know, and all the families gathered together and they're looking at our kids and they're like, you know what? Because they looked at me like, oh, that's Rob. He's in the ministry. He's not going anywhere. And, and now it's, it, 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 there's something significant to it. And I'm blessed by that because it's my kids. They'll be led by a child. I'm watching as my kids are setting this standard of moral knowledge that they're affecting the next generation. Especially in a generation that has been, they, they, they've just been categorically erased of moral knowledge. There's no moral absolutes. And, and I, I get a kick out of that. I'm almost finished with my introduction. I get a kick out of that. <laughs> I get a kick out of that because I, I love this. Sarcastically speaking. How dare you impose your moral views on me? Anyone ever heard that? How dare you impose your moral views on me? What are they doing? They're imposing their moral views on me. Where do you get your moral views? Well, I set them. Where do you get yours? From the 66 books of the Holy Word of God that was written by the hand of God. A moral, codified low, uh, um, a, a moral codified code that was written by the finger of God himself. That has transformed Western civilization unlike anything else that the world has ever seen. 
and yours in your experiment in, in removing God from the equation and doing what right, what's right in your own eyes and, and being in charge and empowered to enslave other human beings and not educate them but indoctrinate them. And you want to tell me that I have no right? I have inalienable rights endowed by our creator. And the reason why I say that is because this is exactly by the power of the Holy Spirit that Zacharias, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied over his little boy as he held him in his arms. And as I went through this week with my son and I went through this week with this book that I've been reading and I went through with the conversations with friends, this jumped off the pages into my heart. And I pray it does the same for you. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Picking up at verse 67. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Lord, bless the study of your word and cause us to be moved as Zachariah was moved holding his little boy in his arms and you, Holy Spirit, moved upon his heart to speak these words over a child that would change a generation and prepare the way of the Lord. God, would you do that for all of us? And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated. This little boy, John the Baptist, I... I have such a picture of him in my head of this guy. I, I, I found this picture, and I don't even think it's accurate because this is, this is a man that hadn't had his hair cut since, since birth. He had a Nazarite vow. No razor would touch his hair. By the time he's, he's of age to, to usher in Christ and baptize Jesus in the Jordan, his hair has got to be unbelievable. He probably, honestly, he looked probably like a Rastafarian. Just, just, his hair was just crazy long. And he had never touched alcohol. Alcohol would never touch his lips. He couldn't even go to his parents' funeral. He wasn't permitted to touch the dead. When they passed, he couldn't give mom and dad one last kiss. And what an odd family he comes from. I mean, here's, here's a man that his parents, and, 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 and Zachariah in his 80s, comes into the temple selected by the 20,000 priests. He's the one who gets to go into the Holy of Holies and there he sees the angel Gabriel who says that your wife will be with child even though you've been barren, you, your wife will be with child. He sees Gabriel, he's fearful, he's, he's paralyzed and then he has the audacity to say, how will I know this? 
I mean, this is, this is Zechariah, who is the priest of God's people, who had been reading God's word. He could quote verbatim the Pentateuch, or, and, and, and he, could, he could go through all of the Levitical laws. He knows the story of Abraham and Sarah, and he knew that Abraham was in his 90s, and, or, you know, and Sarah was old, and, and they had Isaac, the son of the promise, and laughter, and he knew all that. And he's 10 years younger than Abraham. And Gabriel says this to him, and this is a man who has head knowledge but no heart knowledge. There's no faith. And he says, how am I going to know? And he goes, really? I'm Gabriel, idiot. Remember that story? It was in there in the Greek. <laughs> and, and, he, and he just says, you know what? That's it. And he just presses the mute button on Zachariah and he can't speak. And for nine months he can't speak. And, and he's trying to explain it to Elizabeth and he's mimicking to the people and he's saying, I saw an angel and, and people are mesmerized by it. They can tell that he's seen an, an, an angel of the Lord. And, and finally, when it's time to utter the name John, he gets his voice back. After the baby's born, they say, what will his name be? And he says, John, he gets to speak again. Speak. And during the nine months where he's, he's mute, He's just thinking, gosh, Lord, my boy? And he gets, to, he gets to witness Mary coming in and out of the presence of Elizabeth. And every time he comes to the presence, John's leaping. And you just alien. I mean, I remember when the kids were in Michelle's uh, belly and they're just poking and kicking. And, and, and that's what John's doing when, when Mary would come by with Jesus in the womb. And he witnesses this. He sees the connection. And, and, and his heart is store, uh, stirred and he's, he's thinking of Isaiah 9 and he's going through all the, the messianic prophetic statements and he's stunned by it. And then all of a sudden the baby's born and there's his elderly wife. And the scripture says that they were well advanced in years, which means they weren't just old. They looked old. They fell out of the old tree and hit every branch on the way down, remember? And they, they just looked old. And here she is with her arthritic fingers holding this little baby. And Isaiah's looking at that and he's, you know, through the one good eye. Just trying to draw a picture for you. And, and this was a picture I found, I, I thought it was kind of fitting. Here, here That looks like a grandma or great grandma holding her baby, her, her great grandbaby. That's the mom holding the baby. And, and, and this one I didn't like so much because she looks too angelic and, and young. She looks like the, the older ladies. and she's, she's angelic and, you know, soft features. And no, 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 well advanced. You got to put some roadmaps on that face of hers. She, she, she's old. Some folks in the congregation are older, but not old. This lady was old. Okay, I've emphasized it enough. And in the passage of scripture in relation to it, it says that his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And I can think of Zacharias as he's thinking of this concept, and, and the Holy Spirit is moving, and his lips are moving. He says this, he's, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That word redeemed uttering off of his lips, and I, I brought it up for us to take a look at. The, the idea of, of redeemed is, is a verb, to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment. Every Jew knows this one. They were on the slave block in Egypt. God redeemed them and made them a people with a nation and a country, a compact and a boundary and borders. 
It was like a hot knife through butter when they came through Canaan. He yielded it. They, 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 they occupied farms that they didn't plant. They, they had cisterns that they didn't build. God said, it's yours. I give it to you. It's a covenant that Abraham, that God had given to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. He says, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. You will be a great nation. There will be a season of slavery, but you will be set free. I will download this app, this moral knowledge that will make you a people set apart unlike any people on the face of the earth. And from that remnant, from those, that people, in the darkest segment of the world, there will be a great light that will shine. And I will set people free. From Israel, we get law. That's where we get Western civilization, the Judeo-Christian ethic. It comes from this idea of a codified law. Millions of people wandering the wilderness, getting along with one another, in essence, a zombie apocalypse, getting along with one another, providing for their families without a police force or any weaponry or a standing army. Why? Ten Commandments, Sinai. Thou, you don't steal from each other. You don't lie. Wouldn't it be remarkable if we could bring those back into our schools? Moral knowledge. Oh, you, you, can't, you can't teach morality. What? There, everyone has a standard of morality, but shouldn't this be an ethic of science that we study? Why, do, why have we abandoned this, this realm of education? Plato studied it. Socrates studied it. Why have we abandoned it? What allows us to dwell together in a society where we flourish? Does this work? I mean, folks that are in positions of authority are now telling us that there are more than two genders. That didn't get a lot of laughter or shock in a room where we have all been indoctrinated or at least anesthetized. It doesn't shock us anymore. And I don't know how many letters of the alphabet that are included in what we're supposed to remember and the pronouns we're supposed to use. There are two genders, male and female. God created them. Beyond that, there's struggles. I, I, I don't doubt that. But biologically, science proves it. and go through that. But we've removed that. We remove that. And here's, here's the interesting one. We can get a prepubescent child to have the ability to declare themselves an opposite gender than their biological gender. At eight or nine years of age, I am biologically a male, but I'm going to declare to the world around me that I am a female. And that's, that has to be honored. Where's the moral knowledge? Where did that come from? And, and here's, here's the heavy part. You now have the world of the pedophile declaring if they can declare their sex in prepubescence, then they can also give consent for sexual activity. So, pedophilia is acceptable. And some of us aren't outraged by it. 
And it's just a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And this is what we educate. And if we're going to participate in any of these realms of, of society, we have to adhere to that because gone is moral knowledge. We, and, and how far do we take that? And if you're going to teach it on the 23rd of December, the day before Christmas Eve, I'm leaving the church. It's all right, I got a gift. <laughs> but the challenge is, is there moral knowledge and are we required to live by that? And in the darkest part of the world, as it says in Zebulun and Naphtali, which was the darkest part of the world, void of knowledge, void of this idea of moral knowledge, God steps in and begins to transform the world. He takes an enslaved people and sets them free where this downloaded moral knowledge of this app causes them never to have a police force or a standing army and be the longest living civilization in the history of the world. And countless civilizations have tried to wipe them off the face of the earth. We can go down the line. And every one of those civilizations that tried to wipe the Jews out is now in the ash heap of history. And they are still there. And on May 1st, we will land in Israel to visit the nation that they said would never again exist. Why? Codified moral knowledge and a code that they live by. And God said, I'm going to redeem you. You're going to regain possession of the land. And the payment is I'm going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to reconcile you to myself. You will be the people through which I will declare this moral knowledge. I will download this app. I will allow the world to see that there is a sanctification and a setting apart of my people who will be different. They will live by a standard that is beyond the space-time continuum that is eternal in the heavens. And there is a moral code. There is a moral knowledge that everyone is bound by whether they agree with it or not. It's like saying, I don't, I don't believe in electricity. I don't know how it works. It doesn't matter. It still operates whether you know it or not. Law of gravity still operates whether you know it or not. This book, which was fascinating, that captivated, captivated me by the title, but more importantly by the very first words that Dallas Willard wrote, I want to read it to you. Human life has an inescapable moral dimension. That is, it essentially involves choices with reference to what is good and evil, right and wrong, duty and failure to do what ought to be done. Any human community, whatever its scope, will exhibit patterns of such choices more or less recognized as such by its fully formed members. Social change on a vast scale requires moral motivation, a strong sense of right and being morally wronged, or of a good and righteous cause. Only that type of motivation can sustain individuals and groups through the rigors of suffering and sacrifice over lengthy periods of time. He says, what characterizes life in so-called Western society today, however, is the absence or presumed absence of knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong, virtue and vice. Knowledge that might serve as a rational basis for moral decisions, for policy enactments, and for rational critique of established patterns of response and moral issues. And this is what Dallas Willard calls the disappearance of moral knowledge. Biblical teaching, contrary to much contemporary misunderstanding, places a relentless emphasis upon knowledge of God and of what is good as a basis for criticism and correction of human practices. For Plato and Aristotle, as well as for the Stoics and Epicurean teachers, it was putative knowledge, 
well-understood knowledge of the good and of the human soul that served as foundations for their understanding of good and evil in human life and institutions and of what should and should not be done. But we don't teach this or challenge it or examine it any longer in areas of higher education. And if you doubt that, speak with my friend, Dr. Mary Poplin. Moral knowledge could be absent or disappear from life only if responsibility and holding people accountable in the peculiarly moral manner were to be absent or disappear. People in positions of authority that educate our folks, if they abandon this moral knowledge for the sake of someone else's dictates, the culture will suffer. And here on the stage of world events comes this little boy who will make straight the way of the Lord. He's one crying in the wilderness. He is odd to say the least, but he's ushering in the way for the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the way, the truth, the life. Can a decent human existence, individual or corporate, be supported otherwise than upon a body of moral knowledge, understood as such and made widely available through standard instruments and institutions of education? It should be. I'll read this last portion. It says, um, perhaps the world that has abandoned moral knowledge Perhaps they do not in their official capacities explicitly advocate or rationally securitize and defend the set of moral values by which they live, but they do impose those values upon others just by being there and carrying out their functions. This allows them, if it does not actually require them, to be arbitrary about their moral positions they adopt and to confront others merely in terms of who can get their way or who can win. You see, we don't, we don't fight for truth anymore in America. We fight for power. If you get in the positions of power, you can tell others how to act. And your moral values can be arbitrary based on how it serves you. And you can be the king and they can be your serfs. And you will tell them what to do. That makes them politically not moral agents. They're political agents, not moral agents. The intellectual world is accordingly now conceded to the sophist so far as morality is concerned. Persuasion may occur, but knowledge is not provided. We no longer educate, we now indoctrinate. Because there is no moral knowledge. We have removed God from the equation. Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It was Andrew Murray who said this in relation to this passage of scripture in Luke chapter one. He said, there is no attribute of God Did it pull up? Yes. There is no attribute of God so difficult to define, so peculiar a matter of divine revelation, so mysterious, incomprehensible, and inconceivably glorious as his holiness. It is that by which he is specially worshipped in his majesty on the throne of heaven. You see, it says that he spoke, verse 70, chapter 1, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This is a holy God, the Lord God of Israel, set apart, holy. He is the standard, the standard of righteousness, the standard of truth. And when the world abandons that, we're left to our own devices. We remove moral knowledge and it becomes arbitrary. And does mankind flourish? Or do we just add to the body count of failed governmental systems 
that have removed God from the equation. You see, this idea of holiness is this concept of sanctification. Andrew Murray says it unites his righteousness that judges and condemns with his love that saves and blesses. He comes inconceivably near and makes us one with, makes us like himself. The one purpose of his holy covenant is to make us holy as he is holy. He wants to set us apart like he did with John the Baptist with a Nazarite vow that you will change the world. That you will be like him and you will implement these truths in a culture that desperately needs to dwell together with unity. You will set the standard. You will contend for the hearts and the minds of mankind. It is not an exercise in futility. You don't come to church to be entertained. You come to be equipped to change the world that mankind would live. That we would figure out how to have a moral code that would cause us to survive and not enslave one another. Not to have arbitrary rules where we would dictate what someone is allowed to do or isn't allowed to do. We are not permitted to do this based on the color of someone's skin or their socioeconomic status or the religion that they embrace. These truths are self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator, but we must remove that from the education system because it declares that we're created and there's no creator. That is a separation. Why would our founders give us the First Amendment after the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution and explicitly declare that we have freedom of religion because they knew that if we were to be self-governed, we had to have a downloaded moral knowledge, an app that would dictate how we live and dwell together. Otherwise, we would be subject to enslavement. And the government will be upon his shoulders. We will know the truth. The truth will set us free. And this is what God calls his people to. I like what Andrew Murray says. He says, further, this is the great blessing Christ brings. He has been made Unto us both righteousness and sanctification. We are holy in Christ as we believe it, as we receive it, as we yield ourselves to the truth and draw near to God to have the holiness drawn forth and revealed in fellowship with him. It's fountain. We shall know how divinely true it is. There is truth. And realms of higher education seek to educate our children on truth. But like Pilate, we can look and say, what is truth? We can embrace the world's idea that truth is subjective. There are absolutes. It governs us. Our children are to be educated as such. We front load them. We pour into them. You can imagine Zechariah taking his boy to the temple saying, the blood that is dripping from that altar is a result of our sin. Blood must be shed for this remission of sin. Son, these are commandments that we have violated a holy God. He has given us a way into the holy of holies and he will send us a Messiah and you will be the forerunner of that Messiah. And these are the the codified moral knowledge, the moral code to dictate your life. And no, you're not gonna be like the other kids. This is how you're gonna live because you are on this earth to save these folks, to bless them, to establish a culture where they will thrive and their families will be protected and no other human being will enslave them by their ignorance and their stupidity. We will pour into you that you will memorize and you will understand. And this little, this little baby he's holding in his arms and he's pouring into him with the remaining years left in his life and the wisdom he has teaching his son. And as the passage says that we being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, he had just before said he has raised up a horn of salvation for us, salvation from our enemies in the hand of all who hate us. You see, it's only a free people who can serve a holy God or be holy.
We love the law to the extent that it keeps us safe. But we hate the law when we're pulled over for speeding. The laws are necessary for us to dwell together. If we're going to be surviving a zombie apocalypse, we've got to come up with some compacts and agreements as a culture if we're going to thrive and our people will be protected. And as we include more people that come into this family, how do you get millions of people wandering in a wilderness where you don't need a standing army or a a police force because they have a codified moral law that is imparted to them as children? And, And the problem is, when you love evil and you love sin... You hate the righteous. And my favorite is, as a minister, I, 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 I laugh when I am called evil and immoral by a secular. Because I look at them and I say, where do you get the terms in your physical world to use a metaphysical statement upon me? If there's good, there there has to be evil. If there's evil, there has to be good. And by what standard do you measure that? I know my standard. It was written by the finger of God in a codified moral code thousands of years ago that has allowed Western civilization to flourish. Where's yours come from? The ash heap of civilization where billions have died as a result of you standing in opposition to these commandments that you steal and you covet? You see, this isn't an experiment in futility. This is a nation representing less than 3% of the world's population in the history of the world that is responsible for more patents, more achievements, more Nobel Peace Prize winners than any other nation on the face of the earth. Land of the free and the home of the brave. And it used to be 50 and 100 years ago that we imparted this moral knowledge and this moral code into the lives of our children. But now we removed it. God has not permitted, nor is his moral code, It is a secular education of mankind. And now we're reaping what we've sowed. And to change it requires that his people, called by his name, would make straight the way of the Lord. That's a tough one. You see, the passage of scripture in Luke chapter 1 verse 78 When Zachariah is praying over his little boy as he's in his arms, he says, through the tender mercy of our God, which with with which the day spring from on high has visited us. You see, he calls this little boy the day spring. It's called Anatoly in the Greek, and it means a morning star. You know when you wake up early in the morning before the sun rises, and you look out on the horizon before the sun has risen, but you can just start to see the colors uh, rise on the horizon, and there is this, the, the morning star, the last star of the morning before the sun rises and absolutely de- dominates, and you no longer see that star. That's, that's where he makes straight the way of the Lord as the sun is rising. He's there saying, this is where he will rise. This is where he will go. This is what he will declare. And then John 3.30 says that, that John the Baptist must decrease and Christ will increase. Now, this is a picture of the morning star. You can see the sun rising and that last star on the horizon. This is that morning star, this Anatoly. I like that because there's a place called the Anatolian Peninsula. Does anyone know where that is? 
What school did y'all go to? It's Turkey. It's in the east according to this concept of, of biblical ideas. They looked up. And here, this Anatolian Peninsula, this was a place of education. This was a place where Western civilization would take root and the world would change. And, and in this Anatolian Peninsula, fascinatingly enough, where this morning star would rise, this is where Western civilization started to launch. How do we know? The seven churches in the book of Revelation, every single one of them was in the Anatolian Peninsula. There you had Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Patmos, all in the Anatolia Peninsula. This is where Western civilization took root and the church started to thrive. This is where it moved into Europe and then came across with the Geneva Bible and established this idea of a representative form of government, that freedom that the world has never known before, a downloaded principle from the First Amendment that we would have the freedom of religion to worship God and to have a relationship with one another where we wouldn't enslave one another but treat each other as equals. Not in capacity but in dignity, that all life would be precious and we would protect it from the womb all the way to death. This was God's people establishing it. And this Anatolian Peninsula went all the way through Rome where you'd have a little monk standing in the midst of, of, of the, the Circus Maximus as the gladiators are decimating human beings and he would stand and say, stop it! It's not a blob of tissue, it's a baby. Stop it! Don't steal! Don't lie! Don't cheat! Stop it. We're created in the image of God. We're to serve one another, not annihilate each other. He laid his life down that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. Rome would fall to their knees at, at, at these men and women who would die sacrificial deaths as martyrs by saying, stop it. The church would be established. You know what happened to the Anatolian Peninsula where all the original churches started? They no longer exist there. They were wiped out by the Ottoman Turkish Empire. They couldn't get along with each other and they got eaten up. And as it's starting to move in this direction and this idea, this is another picture of the Anatolian Peninsula. You can see it right there, the seven churches in Asia Minor. I'm almost finished. This is Luke 179, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. We sure could use for some peace in 2018 and 2019, amen? This was a prophecy that was given out of Isaiah chapter nine. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Boy, do we dwell in the land of the shadow of death. There's more abortions in California than any other state in the union. We kill, we've killed more children in California than the entire population of Canada. That doesn't grow a church. Nobody wants to hear about a moral law and a moral code. I get it. If it was easier, I'd find another profession. I don't know if I said that right. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He counsels us. He educates us. He's wonderful. He's mighty. He's a father. But the government will be upon his shoulder. I shared that verse, and to this day, people still walk out. We don't want to be told that there's something that we're supposed to do. We just want to be massaged and entertained. I guess the great compliment afforded to me was when Dr. Poplin said, I want you to come speak. I said, Dr. Poplin, I don't even have a master's degree. She said, Rob, there aren't any pulpits in America that I know of that are contending for higher education than yours. There's, there's no moral knowledge that is coming from the pulpits that are calling people to it. And I, I didn't know what that meant. But in Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will perform this. I say that because as I conclude with this, this disappearance of moral knowledge, what is our responsibility If John the Baptist was the morning star, the Anatoly, to make straight the way of the Lord, that the sun would rise on Western culture and transform the world and bring us into a place of civility where mankind could flourish and our children would be safe, where we'd have a codified moral conduct that we would live by, that that we wouldn't have to make more arbitrary laws to enforce our, our will upon another human being, that we would all be equal in the eyes of God, That there aren't elitists that somehow are smarter and they they enslave the rest of us idiots. That we would be the land of the free and the home of the brave where the word of God would be rightly divided and that mankind would flourish and we would treat each other properly and we wouldn't steal, we wouldn't lie, we wouldn't cheat, we wouldn't covet. That moral knowledge needs to be downloaded. How do we do that? Well, this was the last part of my experience this week, and it happened last night. I watched a video. You see, the church, as it moved into the Anatolian Peninsula, the Apostle Paul preaching in Smyrna and Thyatira and Ephesus and and Philadelphia, as he's preaching in these churches and they're establishing these churches, their home groups, their gatherings. And it says in in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Doctrine is this idea of educating in truth. And everywhere that Jesus spoke of the church, he used one word. One word. In the Greek, it's called ekklesia. Church. If I were to take, have all of you take a three-by-five card and write down what the definition of a church is, you'd say, well, buildings, budgets, gathering of people, tithing, place where the Bible's taught, place where you go to hear Christian music. I don't know. You'd fill it out. Jesus called it an ecclesia. He was, he was deliberate in the use of that word. This is not the church. This is a gathering hall. The Bible says where two or more are gathered. He's there. You're the church. You're the church. You're the church. This is a gathering of people who are the church. Ecclesia. Ecclesia. 
deliberate in the use of it. We translated church. The Greeks had a whole different meaning for it. And Jesus used their word. This was the Greek definition of ecclesia. He says, this idea that it's the gathering of those summoned in ancient Greece, assemble, assembly of citizens in a city-state, the meeting of the people in order to codification the law or codify the law. The ecclesia was the body of male citizens 18 years of age or over who had final control over policy, including the right to hear appeals in the public court, take part in the election of the chief magistrates, and confer special privileges upon individuals. You know what the ecclesia was? Government. Schools. Businesses. Anywhere people gathered and had to work together. And when he says you are the ecclesia, you go into that culture and you bring that codified law of God and you apply it everywhere you live. You stand by it, you declare it, and you change the world. How will they know unless someone tells them? You're making straight the way of the Lord. What happens is when you walk in and you codify that law as John the Baptist did, and you bring that moral knowledge to your children and their children's children and you impart it on their hearts and their minds and you stand for it in your community and you declare it in your business principles and you don't steal and you don't lie and you don't cheat and you don't backstab and you don't gossip and you don't slander. You stand for the truth and the truth will set not just you free but your whole community. You, me, we are the ecclesia. And we are launched. The ecclesia is launched into culture. And in Anatoly, that morning star, goes and, and goes before the Lord and goes into the peninsula and sets up Smyrna and Perga and Ephesus and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And it transforms Europe and comes into America. And the world sees freedom. And whenever they're enslaved, they come here. And they want a place to live. They want a place to be free and safe. But you remove that moral knowledge and there will be nowhere to go. And darkness will fall. But in that darkness, they have seen a great light. And unto us a son is given. A child is born. And we make straight the way of the Lord. But be careful. Be careful. You want to make straight the way of the Lord and you want to be the ecclesia and you want to bring in that moral knowledge. That was John the Baptist. He had the audacity to tell the king he wasn't allowed to sleep with his brother's wife. He, how dare you impose your morality on me? His wife, brother's wife, his wife, whatever, I don't even remember. She whispered as, as her, her daughter was dancing this dance, this nubile teen wearing next to nothing is dancing in front of her stepdad, weird. And he's been drinking all night and she's just doing some dance. I mean, it's a messed up family. And she is inundated in sin and she doesn't want anyone telling her she's wrong. And she hates John the Baptist. And she whispers to her daughter, you go dance for Herod. And you, you get him all riled up. I know what happens when he drinks. And she starts dancing and he says in front of everybody, you're hot. Anything you want up to half my kingdom, stepdaughter. And she says, 
I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. You be careful when you step into this world and make straight the way of the Lord. William Wilberforce was abused for over 50 years. Dietrich Bonhoeffer hung in a German prison. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was shot on the balcony of a, of a hotel in Memphis. Abraham Lincoln got a bullet to the back of his head. Need I go on? Every apostle died, with the exception of John, who they tried to kill. But I am sure grateful for all those men and women who went before us that we would have a culture that we have today. And we have the freedom in this nation to celebrate the Christ child and be able to say to one another, although it's waning rapidly, we still can say to one another, Merry Christmas. And as I met all the employees of the city of Thousand Oaks and they came up to me and I was greeting them for the city Christmas party, they would say to me, Happy Holidays. I don't get a paycheck in that sense. I looked at them as an elected official and I look at them and I go, Merry Christmas. But you know what? What moves them and will move the world is not necessarily what you're saying, but how you're living.